0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Public Work, the Public Humanities podcast out of the John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage at Brown University. My name is Amelia Golcheski.
1: And my name is Jim McGrath. Amelia, who are we talking to today?
0: Today, we're hearing from Julian Saporiti and Aaron Aoyama, two PhD students in the American Studies program here at Brown, who run the No-No Boy Project. And the No-No Boy Project is a musical public history project that really unpacks the Asian-American experience in America. And they get into Japanese incarceration, what it's like, the refugee experience out of the Vietnam War... And, you know, it's really interesting. They're essentially doing history through folk songs. And we're going to hear some music this week, which is kind of exciting, a departure for us here at Public
1: Work. Yes, neither of us are musically inclined. So we it's good that we brought in people who are to to share their musical inclinations with you. It's true.
0: And I think one of the more interesting things about this project is kind of that it's experimental scholarship right? Julian's dissertation is not necessarily, you know, 300 page written work, but it's the songs you're going to hear. So what are your thoughts on public humanities and experimental scholarship?
1: Yeah, I think the the experimental scholarship question is one of those questions, that I think it's, it's of more interest or urgency to academics or an academic context, because I think like a lot of people out in the world, you'd be like, well, yeah, like, music, folk music has lots of value and is doing lots of really important cultural labor and and things like that, or, or other things that, that an academic might go, Ooh, this is experimental and their monocle would fall out or something like that. Um, are, you know, very conventional, familiar and, and valued, uh, forms of, of cultural labor, probably not called cultural labor, um, you know, beyond academic context, or maybe they are in, in other respects too. Um, But yeah, I think I think so. That's kind of the work that's happening here with the No No Boy project is is stuff that it's it's great to see. And, and, you know, I'd love to see more of this sort of work in uh, academic spaces. Um, So it's an interesting, you know, decision to to take up that project. What do you think about it?
0: Oh, I 100 percent dig it. Um, Talking to them was really, really inspiring for me and particularly thinking about the role of audience in their work. Um, And that, you know, many more people will encounter stories of Japanese incarceration or being a refugee from the Vietnam War through song than necessarily reading a dissertation. And I think there's something really powerful in that. And I think, you know, it's it's really effective to hear stories about history and memory and trauma in a four minute song in a way that just reading, you know, it thoughtful beautiful dissertation it's not quite the same
1: yeah yeah so it's it's great to to hear models of the stuff and then also to to hear from the performers um and the scholars um because it is a form of scholarship i would and i think we both agree on that um talk about like why what led them to down this route and there's also an interesting connection back to um, the guests from our last episode, uh, Providence is Chinatown, uh, no, no boy did perform as part of the public programming around the Providence Chinatown initiative. So it's, it's cool to see two really, um, exemplary and innov- innovative projects also like acknowledging each other and working together there at the Brown university level.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, they're also just widely talented the people we're going to hear from this week so enjoy listening to the no, no boy project and as always let us know what you think send us a tweet on the twitter at public work pod or email us at public work podcast at gmail.com
1: yeah and enjoy this episode enjoy the music uh and be thankful that the music is not coming from myself and amelia um maybe we can have a a special bonus episode if we if we get a a certain level of of funding or something where we both perform um some sort of musical project Um, but until then enjoy the no no boy project
2: tony likes a Ramones. at least he likes a blitzkrieg bar we share a pair of headphones and are caught up in a bachelor's law That sweater lady selling sandals on the corner of modern Grand. Her friend is bundled up like a child behind her, ray gun in hand. The fishmongers down on Henry perfume themselves with cigarette smoke. Now I'll head down to Catherine Street to find Tony Ramone.
0: Okay, so we're here with No-No Boy, which is a multimedia um, public history musical project. Um, thank you for coming, Julian and Aaron. I guess my first question is, how did this project begin?
3: Hmm. Um, I think you would go back to maybe winter of just after the election um, with the Trump stuff. I'm sure you remember. <laughs> um,
0: no, I totally forgot. <laughs> I, I, guys, went, right? I went asleep and yeah, <laughs> slept through right.
3: it all. Fair, fair enough. Um, yeah, so I was a graduate student um, starting my second year in the ethnomusicology program at Brown. I was doing this really wonderful project where I was studying street musicians and traveling to Europe and just spending summers playing in the most beautiful cities in the world and getting to know all the people who populated these squares and a uh, very romantic life for a grad student. And then... The election happened, and I had this little project tucked away um, that I'd been working on about jazz bands which formed in Japanese incarceration camps during World War II. And that project just sort of screamed relevancy, in part because um, I think it was one of Trump's aides actually used that as a precedent for the Muslim ban, um, saying, you know, it's worked before and, and it could work again. And that kind of invigorated me. I think a lot of us were very upset and in disbelief. And, and so I kind of just had a come to Jesus moment where I wanted to do a more, I don't know, politically relevant project. And so I kind of dug into these oral histories I'd collected about um, folks who had been in these Japanese incarceration uh, or internment camps, as they're more popularly referred to. And I was home over winter break, and I was literally sitting down at my mom's table, and she was cooking uh, Vietnamese food in the kitchen. And I had always ubiquitously had my guitar around, because before I fell backwards into academia, I was a musician. And I had my headphones on and was listening to these voices, um, different voices telling all these different stories about Japanese incarceration, but also about... Um, other stories in Asian-American experience that I had just kind of become curious as an oral historian and recording. And I just picked up my guitar and started writing. Um, just started writing some of these stories into songs. Um, and yeah, it was really just like kind of being at home in Nashville where I'm from, being near my mom who is a Vietnamese refugee, leaning more into our family history, kind of turning that into song. And some of these songs just started pouring out um, around the kitchen table. And by the time I came back to Brown in the middle of my second year, I had about a dozen songs and wanted to perform them. And then eventually uh, my advisor in American studies said, why don't you turn this into your dissertation? And that was Bob Lee who Aaron and I both work with and the super supportive, like quite a few faculty members here. And um, that was the, the beginning. Um, and then it really started to take a different form when Aaron came on board.
0: Yeah, and how did you come on board?
4: <laughs> yeah, so Julian and I met um, in August on this amazing um, workshop that our colleague in American Studies, Nicole Santetis, put together that was a Japanese-American incarceration mobile workshop where... Um, Eight grad students and the musician Kishi Bashi and a filmmaker traveled from Phoenix, Arizona, up the length of the exclusion zone, basically where all Japanese Americans were forcibly evacuated from during World War II. Um, And we ended in Bainbridge Island off the coast of Washington. So this was a two week trip where we stopped, you know, at various sites of incarceration, memory, um, formation, and then, you know, took some side trip adventures along the way, too. And I was about to start my first year of graduate school, and Julian said, you know, I hear you're a singer. Do you want to sing some harmony on some of these songs? And I was like, sure. So that's kind of when we started singing together. Um, And then since we've been at Brown, this project over the course of the last eight months or so has just grown very organically. Um, But we've traveled all over, sometimes opening for our friend Kishibashi, who's a fairly well-known indie rock musician, um, but also traveling to different universities, doing artist residencies and workshops. So we've been in classrooms that are studying Asian American history, American history, popular culture, music. Really, like, we can be very flexible at these workshops um, and doing performances and, you know, sharing the stories that we've collected as part of our research, but also hearing stories. Um, we do a QA and a after pretty much every concert um and for us i think as researchers that's the most interesting powerful part because you see the ways that people react to the stories and the music um yeah so the project has grown a lot and You know, now we're incorporating thinking about curriculum and using some of these songs and this kind of arts-based learning in the classroom. Um, But really just, I think, being in public humanities has also shaped the way I think about this Um, and thinking about how we translate the work that we're doing in the academy, quote-unquote academy, um, to a broader audience, these things that we care about and we think are important to learn about. So how do you kind of translate that? Um, And so having a kind of public humanities framework and uh, methodology, I think, has really grown the project as well.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm really struck by kind of a conversation about audiences, because so much of public humanities work mm-hmm. is focused on, well, who's your audience? Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, telling history through song really lends itself to a diverse kind of crew of audiences. Mm-hmm. So you go into different types of venues, right? Mm-hmm. Like what kind of venues are you going into? What different types of audiences are you working with? Does your repertoire change? Like how has audiences and their feedback really impacted the project or shifted it if it has?
3: Um, so just in the last, I guess, week we've played, uh, we did a residency at UMass Amherst. So we just went to a classroom I was learning about Asian-American representation, and we did a a banquet for some Asian-American students. That's like what I call a very home team kind of show. (laughs) Um, And that's great and really wonderful, and I think people can go very deep with that stuff because they've lived a lot of these experiences, or their parents have, that we sing about. Um, But then we also, you know, we play, uh, you know, art spaces or... Like Aaron said, when we we're on tour with our friend Kishibashi, like indie rock clubs and stuff. And then also, just I think one of the most impactful gigs that we've played was down in Selma at um, the sort of Civil Rights Center mm-hmm. that my friend uh, works at. And, um, you know, it was a small crowd, um, mostly African American folks, and sort of doing this thing that we talk a lot about in graduate seminars when you study race and ethnicity, of like, you know, like uh, interracial solidarity stuff. Mm-hmm. And we, we read books about this and stuff, but actually being able to go down and put it into practice and be like, here's some songs about, you know, Vietnamese refugees, or my mom, or you know Aaron's grandmother who was locked up in an incarceration camp. Like, do you care? And, and the response was really great. And um, for those particular people at that mm-hmm. concert, um, sort of seeing similar struggles in very different specific histories, but similar struggles because of race and identity and stuff like that. Um, we did a kind of another similar event where we did a storytelling um, performances amongst a bunch of storytellers, kind of trying to bridge the Chicano and Japanese communities in Chicago at this really wonderful art space. And so those those kind of things are really meaningful. And then there's also when we go out and play like for mostly like white right-wing folks which is maybe the most impactful Mm -hmm. um and kind of the reason why i wanted to actually get back on the road again as a touring musician because i'm from tennessee i've lived in wyoming and um you know those are good folks down there and um maybe personally i feel their politics are a little misguided at the moment but songs like you picked up on are a nice way to just like share a story Mm -hmm. certainly um easier to, to talk to someone and have a conversation after you sing them a song rather than giving them your 25-page article that's been peer-reviewed to death and mm-hmm. you don't even know what you're saying in it. So I like writing that stuff too, but, you know.
4: Yeah. yeah, I think it's one of the cool things about this project is that we are not targeting necessarily a specific audience. And like the performances Julian just outlined, you know, anyone who wants to bring us there and that we can get to, will perform for Um and sing with and talk with afterwards and so i think thinking about as broad an audience as possible especially the more challenging gigs where you know sometimes we're singing songs and telling stories about histories that folks have no idea about Mm. um and that's a big part of the project too so you asked if we you know change our repertoire and we change our set pretty much every gig um depending on the audience depending on what we've been asked to do Um, we'll change the order of songs, we'll change the stories we're telling, um, because sometimes, you know, we're playing for an event that's commemorating Japanese American incarceration, so we're gonna play, you know, mostly songs from that, that suite, um, if we're playing, we just played the Providence's Chinatown, um, something at AS220, Downtown Providence, and, you know, Julian had written a song based on one of the oral histories that was part of the, the project, so that was a new song. So really, it changes, you know, constantly. It's like this constant defense of of our research and our project, which is great. Um, And it's a way of really seeing, you know, how, as Julian was saying, these concepts and these theories play out um, to different audiences, um, which, you know, means a lot (laughs) and is challenging in its own way.
3: In terms of what the audience kind of gives back is... um sometimes it's very specific stories Mm -hmm. that then kind of continue on in this sort of rolling project where songs will be written about interactions that we have or they'll recontextualize some of the work that we do and we'll tell the stories that people have told us. I remember being down in Georgia earlier this year and a kid um, whose mom is uh, not documented from Mexico and living in San Diego, he came up and that's a very far... Uh, kind of stone's throw from my mom's situation of being a refugee coming to Vietnam but something about the story of a mother who had to navigate being an immigrant you know under different kinds of trying circumstances really touched that kid and Mm -hmm. and that kind of showed me um, how where you can find these um, similarities and maybe opportunities to work with people and stuff like that and Mm -hmm. that's been really nice um, you know and then likewise you know when we're out in Wyoming like Going out to breakfast the next day with mm-hmm. uh, a friend of ours, and her brother came. Her brother? Her, her sister. sister. And her sister's
4: husband. Right. Yeah. And
3: um, you know, they're Wyoming folks. Grew up um, like a lot of folks, ranching or mining or in the fossil fuel industry, and um, might not be hardcore political either way. But if they are, they lean right um, in that state um, in the Mountain West, and just all the sort of illuminations that happened um, about this place we were at. Heart Mountain. We're at this camp that Aaron's grandmother was in uh, 76 years ago. And it was something about not only kind of the personal legacy that she brings, but also the stories that we sing that allowed this guy, I guess, Mm -hmm. to kind of get deeper inside this history that he'd been living right next to.
4: Yeah. And he said, you know, I drive by that place every day. I like kind of know what was there, but I've never been in the museum. I've never stepped on the property. And never really knew these stories. Um, and it's a way of, I guess, like having other people also take ownership of this history too. Um, that, you know, you live 10 minutes down the road from this camp, you know, that's, that's part of your life in some way. Um, and I think it was really interesting to talk with him over breakfast, um, just about, you know, how then he was changing his way of thinking about this land that he inhabits.
0: I'm really, one of the things that's striking about this project is you're not necessarily dealing with archival silences, mm-hmm. I think, um, or maybe you are, you can correct me, um, but instead you're um, perhaps trying to reinvigorate humanity mm-hmm. or re, um, reinserting humanity in a story that when I learned about Japanese incarceration in you know 11th grade AP US history, it was a sentence, mm-hmm. and you keep going, mm-hmm. um, which is horrible. Um, but what I think is so effective about doing this through music is not you're not necessarily naming people, but you're giving people a relational. Um, a way of getting into this history, right? Like everyone has a parent, everybody has a loved one, uh, which I think is really interesting. So how do you navigate kind of your archival research, your oral history, but also your family legacies in this? Is there kind of a process for bringing in personal stories or stories of people in the audience? Um, And how does that kind of intersect with your scholarship and your understanding of how archives and research works?
4: I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, so I'm trying to think in my head. Um, I think we are dealing with archival silences in a sense, in that, you know, one of the songs that we sing, we like to start off with this newspaper article about an essay, so first-generation immigrant to the United States from Japan, bachelor man in his 60s who one day, walking back into the camp in Colorado, he was at Amache, um, he walked out into the desert carrying a rope, and he hung himself, and no one found his body for three weeks because there was no one looking for him, he had no family, he'd come to the United States to make a new life for himself and then had lost it all um, and mm. was sent to this prison camp. So. That's a story that exists in the archive, um, but I would not say is voiced necessarily. That kind of story and a lot of the stories that we tell are not ones that fit within kind of the mainstream narrative if you learn about something like Japanese American incarceration that you learn about necessarily. So a lot of our project I think is maybe trying to give voice to some of those, maybe not silences, but things that can kind of get buried um, in the archive. And I think for me at least, You know, this is part of my family history. My grandmother was incarcerated, and I have a lot of memories of her growing up, but she passed away before I started fifth grade, and we never talked about, obviously, this um, part of her life, but she never talked about it with anyone. So it's this process of trying to dig into the silences of my own family story, which are, you see repeated in a lot of Japanese American families. There were a lot of folks who didn't ever talk about this, and a lot of histories of trauma that these silences are woven in Um, And so I think we try to balance in our storytelling, in our songs, respecting that silence and then doing the work of historians and trying to kind of speculate and and learn as much as you can about certain places and people and lives and then stitch them back together for an audience. Um, But always keeping in mind that there are these silences and there are these voices we'll never hear. Um, and how does that connect with this larger project of what we call history? Um, how do you, you know, learn your family's story when you don't have access to it? Um, which has echoes um, outside of histories like Japanese American in- incarceration too. Um, and so we, I think, try to approach it from naming names when we can. There's a song um, that we sing that's about you know, these histories of folks who don't make it out of the archives because they didn't make it out of camp. And that the oral histories you collect are the people who lived and who are still alive and who are willing to tell their story. And so how do you both honor those folks and appreciate their contributions to history while also kind of remembering that there's a lot of people across history who never speak? Um, so I think that's kind of something we're always thinking about, especially on stage and trying to honor, you know, that legacy as well and sort of expand what we even think of as history. Um And that's part of, I think, the curricular intervention that we're we're thinking about of, you know, how do we sort of shift methodologically the way that we think about learning history um, to expand this idea and think about our own family histories or these histories you don't learn or are silenced for one reason or another.
3: You want to play some of those songs that you can talk about?
4: Sure. Okay. Is that okay with you? Of Coffee. course. <laughs> um,
3: so I'm gonna I was tracking that beautiful speech that Erin just made. You, so I'm gonna <laughs> Thanks, man. run through uh, we'll run through just snippets of each of those three songs that she was talking about. Through so long and lache. Sure. Then you can talk about. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I have really bad sniffles right now. It's allergy uh, season. Person, whoever is listening to yeah. this <laughs> apologize. All right.
2: So long, Amache I couldn't spare you a dream But when I looked back from my trailway seat I dreamt of fire and kerosene So long, Amache Goodbye, Granada town. Take me west on US 50. He'll take me north or east or south. The second week of July, I gave a finger to the scouts. As they marched on by in the summer parade, I thought of laying Uncle Sam flat out. So long, so long, a marchin'. So.
3: Yeah, so that one, I think what you're talking about, Aaron, <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, that's the one where we show this. So for all these songs, it's hard to do on a podcast. <laughs> we, we project visuals um, that line up with the, um, the song in some way as we perform it. And um, that one, So Long Amache, that's where we show this newspaper clipping uh, that we took from the archives that says 61-year-old Issei Bachelor found dead. Uh, no one found him for three weeks, all the stuff that Aaron said. And his name was Tomoki Ogata. Um, and that's kind of how we preface that because the song is very bitter, mm-hmm. right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's a very bitter song, um, it's imagining not the transformative, uh, patriotic narrative that we hear a lot about Japanese incarceration, mm-hmm. because there was this amazing heroic troop, uh, combat unit of soldiers called the 442nd, who were the most decorated in all of World War II for their size. Um, and that's, that's really the legacy, Mm -hmm. um, that gets passed down as a legacy in your family. Um, and so there are scales to balance in some way, at least from a songwriting perspective.
4: Yeah. And the, I mean, the project as a whole, even calling ourselves No No Boy, um, is kind of a nod to this other history that I didn't learn until college. Um, because, you know, my family's legacy is the 442nd, my grandfather fought and, um, that's something I'm very proud of, but I also know how important it is to include these other stories of folks who didn't want to be drafted out of the camps because they had their citizenship rights taken away. And so I'm not going to fight for your army while you've incarcerated my mother, my father, my siblings, my friends, um, which I think is a really understandable sentiment, um, but doesn't sort of gets nudged out of the other tr- more triumphalist mm-hmm. narrative. So the, the project is giving a nod to that history, to John Okada's novel, um, which if you haven't read, you should Google. Um, and read but, yeah, trying to also, you know, spell out the, the complicatedness of having this sort of triumphalist recovery narrative next to this bitterness um, and the suicides, the deaths, the, the folks who didn't make it out. You know, that the music allows us to put those things next to each other without having to give, you know, here's the one narrative to take out of it. It's like all of these things existed at the same time and make of that what you will, what yeah. you
3: can. And the thing is, like, while Tomoki's body was hanging grotesquely, right? Um, and just riding for three weeks along the Arkansas River in southeastern Colorado. Um, this place that I went to last summer sort of as like my own pilgrimage to walk this same ground and sort of try to understand what this land still has to, to tell us. Um, You know, while that's happening, there are dances. There are jazz Mm -hmm. bands that are being formed by idiot musicians like myself who, when (laughs) they're told, carry two suitcases, they decide to bring a guitar or a trumpet um, instead of clothing. I can very very much relate to that. Um, And they put on dances. Uh, Girls, social clubs make uh, crepe paper streamers to hang in these awful mess halls, these uninsulated barracks. Um, They sprinkle cream of wheat on the floor so they can dance around and jitterbug and and the band plays. And maybe they're good and maybe they're not, but they can keep a beat. (laughs) And these teenagers can do something, right? And they can survive in this way. And all the while, you know, that happiness is being found in a very triumphant way. Mm -hmm. But Tomokyo Ogata is hanging. And... um, so Aaron mentioned, uh, was alluding to another song that we'll play. It's called Two Candles in the Dark. Mm-hmm. And I'll let her talk about it.
2: Don't it feel like a movie Teaching this girl how to waltz Left feet she might have three But she sure feels nice in my arms Old folks sing an old song Playing the agreed upon key My eyes are stuck on her Her eyes don't leave her feet All this girl, no class ring Maybe this is more than a law brown boots a dirt floor we're dancing like two candles
4: in the dark yeah so that song is one of my favorites um but it's about this place at heart mountain which was the camp out in wyoming where my grandmother was incarcerated um it's about the root cellar out there that was built by the japanese americans who were incarcerated there it's it was huge like the size of a football field um and there are photos in the archive of trucks going in and out with produce and things like that. Um, and it was also this space where, you know, teenagers would sneak out around the barbed wire if they could and hang out there away from their parents and from kind of the life that was in camp. Um, and it's, it's an interesting place. It still exists. Um, Julian and I were out there in October. And it's falling apart. It's you know the roof is caved in. There's an old car down there. Lots of beer cans because teenagers kept going back there, um, even after the camp closed. Local teenagers. Um, It's very unsafe to be inside of. But of course, we spent about three hours in this root cellar Mm -hmm. playing music, thinking about you know putting sound back into the space. And Julian thinks a lot about and talks a lot about the the sonic aspects of history that you kind of lose. And so it was really meaningful to be there um, in this space where you know maybe my grandmother spent some time. She was twenty in the middle of college, maybe a little too old to be sneaking out. um, But still, this kind of space of maybe resistance or finding happiness in in a really dark time. Um, And it's you know it's complicated to go back to these places where. I know there's kind of family history there. And, and I'm walking the same ground that at some point Gra, which is what we call my grandmother, was walking and, you know, under very different circumstances. And I don't feel overly sad. I don't feel, you know, overly emotional. Um, but still, you know, as, as a historian, um, aspirationally at least, I think it's really important to walk that that land and those spaces and and see what's left there see what kind of memory has been created Um, so this song to me is kind of a tribute to that memory to those teenagers who found some light in what was otherwise a very dark sad time I think
3: yeah and I think once again it's this when when thinking about how as a historian or a scholar um, you want to tell a story Um, you know for me my natural default mode is to sing and to be a songwriter. Like I said, that was I was just in, a kid in a band for like a decade. That's how I made my living. Um, and that's what's natural to me. And it's also this way to investigate um, the archives, um, family stories, stories we hear, stories we take from the places we go to in a way that provides a mode of analysis I can't reach as an essay writer. Um, I think... Obviously, this isn't something I would recommend for all historians to make really <laughs> shitty albums or anything like that. Um, but there are, maybe what I would recommend is, you know, bring more artists into the academy and let us also encourage those with artistic uh, tendencies, um, capabilities to, to think about how, why does a dissertation have to look this way? Um, play one more song about the Japanese incarceration um, that Aaron alluded to. And it's definitely like our heaviest song of the set, but it is a song that does list names. And the, the project of the song is to think about the project of history itself. Um, and it's called Only What You Can Carry, which was the refrain that the Japanese were given, bring only what you can carry to camp. And it sort of takes that and recontextualizes it as the refrain in this song to make us think about what do we carry as a society, as maybe historians, but, you know, as family members mm-hmm. um, or as people who... Um, all have a right to remember um, if they so choose. We'll start at the second verse. Um, and uh, yeah, and this is once again kind of really specifically thinking about you ask how this project kind of continually changes stuff. After meeting Aaron and talking to her about her grandfather's legacy and how that informed her family's history and how they viewed the war, you know, this patriotism, this pride in the military, um, that was something when. I began to study the resistors of Japanese incarceration. I wanted a song and a verse to place these people side by side, having no lack of respect for either. But this thing that's very hard if you're trying to make an argument in an essay to, to bring about, um, you have to kind of focus on, on one line, one narrative. Um, but in a song, you can use lyrics to juxtapose and smash things right up against each other. So will start from the second verse
2: um, of Only What You Can Carry. I was talking to my friend, Erin Awuyama, about her granddad's purple heart. Catching a bullet, proving some metal, and saving our world from falling apart. Then my ears caught the roar of a thousand men or more. Marching with the Hoshidan I sang those Issei songs You don't hear anymore Scraped from Loyal American tongues Only what you can carry Take only what you can carry And I think of Frances Okasaki When did her daughters realize she was gone? And I think about John Yoshida Laying down on the railroad track To join his mom But take only Only what you can carry. carry Only what you can carry I would but ask you one question Simple and true And there is no right answer I expect back from you But when we remember Really what do we do? Who do we save? And who do we lose? I think of those granddads in the 442 And their names held forever In red, white, and blue But also scrawled out in some reds, whites, and blues There's Francis Okasaki And there's poor John Yoshida there's Mr. Harada, and Tomoki, oh God, so take only, only what you can carry, only what you can carry. carry, take only what you can carry, but carry some of these names, if you could. Thank you.
0: What's that? I imagine that's a hard song to sing. Um.
4: Yeah, we used to end with it. There was a string of shows where we played that song last, and then we realized that that was a little too much of a downer to end on. Um, And so now we have another song that we play right after it. But I think every night, I mean, you, you sang most of it, Julian, but at least for me, it's sort of I'm very aware all of a sudden of being on a stage in front of people and kind of like the legacy that I'm carrying with me and, and that we're, you know, singing about and also complicating and, and all of that. Um, so it can be a very emotional song, but I think every time we sing it, it's emotional to me for a different reason, um, which is interesting. Um, and I try to kind of jot down after each show, like, okay, what did that feel like? Um, yeah, it was it
3: was hard to write and sing um basically i was so overtaken by these photos that i found of um the fella named in the one of the fellas named the song named john yoshida who um we project this photo it's a slow pan and eventually you see a severed head um in a railroad track and a body almost like some kind of surrealist photograph and to me um there's no more striking or powerful image from all the archives that we've dug through um, to kind of encapsulate not only Japanese incarceration but just that other side that untold darker underbelly of a lot of immigration stories you know mm-hmm. of the folks who just waste away in detention centers for years or folks in like the Vietnamese diaspora that I'm a part of, of who just languaged at refugee camps for generations you know being born into these camps and stuff like that and people who die people who don't make it. And I never heard in all the books I read um, about Japanese incarceration, about these folks who just couldn't take it, but it makes a lot of sense. Like the idea that to be locked away, what is the the cost of this? And these were not death camps like the Nazis and stuff like that um, in Europe, but it was harsh enough on some of these people, like John Yoshida, who also just was like a quiet kid in his early 20s in Arkansas one of the camps in Arkansas and he just walked one day from his uh, barrack and he found a place on the railroad track and just laid his head down wrote a note and said more or less you know mom I'm coming to join you his mom had died when he was a kid and he said uh, not to think of him poorly and he folded up his coat and he put his hat on top of it and they just let his neck lay on the railroad track and that was such a haunting story and such a forgotten story and how do you forget that i mean it makes sense because people don't want to remember and that's fine and that's why the refrain is take only what you can carry because for someone like my mom who's lived through a war who was in the house when her great-grandfather was assassinated during the Tet offensive um, and exploded by a grenade like that's not something that me or anyone else as second generation kids of that story or any historian has the right to question um, in my opinion but there are these people who kind of lay there forgotten and you know it's uh, it's something to just not say you need to remember this or you have to do this but this this is a picture that's in a national archive Mm -hmm. just like pictures of soldiers in uniform just like pictures of cute kids whatever um and it's just something to reckon with maybe and that's why it's just a suggestion
0: (laughs) i when you all performed as part of the brown's art art initiative this was one of the songs you sang and Mm -hmm. as i was walking home you know i was thinking about those my own family history i was thinking about um you know, being second, third generation American and carrying kind of the trauma of family immigrating from Eastern Europe mm-hmm. um, and thinking about, well, we we carry these stories that aren't necessarily my stories to tell, mm-hmm. but they're so, um, so much of the fabric of who I am. And I'm wondering, you know, how do you all feel about that and kind of family legacies and holding on to stories of your grandmother being incarcerated or your mother being a refugee and thinking about kind of the memory work of being historians and holding on to that.
4: Yeah, that's a really interesting question and one that we've gotten I think from other artists. I'm thinking of this one dancer um, who's at University of Michigan doing an MFA uh, that we were chatting with um, her and some of her colleagues about, you know, what, what do you do when it's not really your story to tell? Um, but at the same time, it, it is in that it shapes your life and how you move through the world. Um, and I think that's a really interesting question that will keep me engaged um, in, in, the, in this work. Because, you know, I, I have had a lot of conversations with my dad over the past couple of months, you know, basically begging him to remember details um, and find pictures and stuff. And coming to terms with, I think, over and over again, that there are certain things I'm just never going to know, um, and there are ways to sort of put band-aids on that or learn other people's stories, Um, but coming to terms with this silence in the past and, you know, certain stories that I do know and certain ways that I remember my grandmother or think about, you know, what's going to be important to me to teach or to, you know, have written down, um, but that's one of the things about being able to sing and have music be part of this story is that, you know, it gives me another way to create some of these memories or, or process some of these memories. Um, and I think on like a very real level, also touring with this project has really introduced me to a broader Japanese American community, um, which has been really cool because I grew up in Connecticut. I knew my three siblings, my dad, my uncle. Um, but that was kind of it. We didn't have a kind of community of other folks with shared experiences. So meeting other people around the country who are also half Japanese and sometimes who know their family stories, but sometimes who don't has created this kind of community for me that I think is important in this idea of, of memory um, and remembering these histories of trauma Um, and thinking about the fact that, you know, sure, this is, this is painful and it's in the past, um, but my family's okay. And like the Japanese American community by and large is okay, but there are other communities that are right now still experiencing these kinds of traumas. And so then what is our responsibility, what is my responsibility to turn to those folks and help in some way or give of myself in some way? Um, And I think that's how I've been thinking about these stories of like, okay, this is important for me to know, it's important to teach about, but there is also you know, a very real contemporary echo happening right now in a lot of different ways. And I think that's important um, to, be active within as part of this kind of memory. If that makes sense.
3: (laughs) I think it makes sense. Very much. Um, Yeah, Erin and I, you know, are very different people and come from very different Mm -hmm. backgrounds. Um, And I think the fact that she, we're both Asian American, but the fact that she's Japanese American and I'm Vietnamese American, those are two entirely different communities. Mm -hmm. Um, Politically um, and organizationally, um, where folks live, in some cases, but um, maybe uh, most importantly to to make the distinction economically, right? So, generally speaking, East Asian folks um, who, when we think of Asian American, that's who we think of. We think of Chinese folks and Japanese folks and maybe Korean folks um, uh, are pretty well off, like just generally speaking. Um, obviously there's uh, different folks in every different kind of community and you can't speak for all of them, but you know, with folks from Southeast Asia, other parts of Asia, those are some of the most impoverished populations in the country, and it's very complicated. Um, it's also some of the most under threat uh, minorities in the country. Like There's just 40-something Cambodians, which were just deported um, as part of this whole Trump thing, uh, back to Cambodia, having lived here their entire lives and stuff, um, over paperwork and the complete dehumanization and stuff like that. Um, which is a very different prospect. So when we travel around, we get invited by a lot of Japanese-American organizations organizations because those folks have established themselves, they've been here for generations now. Um, when people immigrate, they're often, um, what do you call like intellectuals or mm-hmm. professionals. Um, they're not coming over as refugees. Mm-hmm. And so there's a head start kind of thing. So that's where a lot of people who will hire us to play or want us to do workshops, uh, we go. So we get to meet that community. We haven't done any work except for the Brown Vietnamese Student Association here of like me engaging with that community. Um, And on top of that, um, you know, you're dealing with two very different legacies here, right? You're dealing with a legacy from World War II that was domestic. These were camps in the United States. Uh, My mom and the family that had to leave Vietnam, they're spread throughout the world. Um, and the homeland is just really an imaginary, right? I mean, these are communities that still fly a southern flag that was defeated decades ago, which is not unlike the community in the south that I come from. Um, definitely some differences, but holding on to memory in a really painful way. Um, and so it's a really interesting thing as we travel, um, because we're not playing for a lot of Vietnamese audiences. Chinese or Japanese, yes, um, but not so much for Southeast Asian audiences. And that's one of the things we're trying to do. Like this summer, are trying to work with a local group called PRISM, um, which focuses on a lot of the Southeast Asian, particularly Cambodian population in Providence, to sort of maybe think about putting that history into the high school curriculum um, and what that might look like. How do we produce work through their eyes um, as more senior historians and, and also <clears throat> artists and how do we transfer that and so they're very different projects um, when it comes to the personal dynamics of our mm-hmm. family legacies um, and also yeah yeah it's it's it's, it's very interesting
2: mm-hmm.
0: can you talk a little bit about um, the type of music you play I think considering the history of like folk music mm-hmm. in the United States um why you picked that genre or if it the stories you wanted to tell just more kind of lean folksy Mm -hmm. and and then if you could talk a little bit about um your curriculum project and you know how music is informing that Yeah. yeah for students
4: well so thinking about the genre which julian can talk a little bit about but i think there's this way that as not an ethnomusicologist myself, um, folk music and this kind of country-ish, Americana-ish sound has, I mean, a long history of being a form of storytelling in and of itself. Um, And it's very non-confrontational. Like, even if you don't love the the genre, the songs aren't gonna offend you or hurt your ears or anything like that. Um, And our colleague, Diego, who's a historian that we've worked with, Um, has described the songs and the style as giving you a nostalgia for a history you never learned, um, which I think is brilliant and a really wonderful description that I think these songs feel familiar and then their impact is kind of doubled or tripled by the fact that we're singing about people and the visuals you're looking at are not people you would expect to see as the protagonists of these kinds of songs, but it's kind of making an intervention in its own way of like, but these are Americans, you know, in quotes, too. And these could be the subjects of these songs and are the subjects of our songs. Um,
3: yeah, it's, um... What's that gal's name from the Carolina Chocolate Drops?
0: Rhiannon Giddens.
3: Yeah, yeah, So, like, what she does, I think... Um, I'm sure if, like, this project ever got real play on NPR or something or with that crowd, those... They would compare it very... Right. It's the Asian. Yeah. Like <laughs> And, uh, but for me, it's like, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. I grew up on Music Road. My dad was in country music growing up. Um, And so this is kind of second nature music to me. It's just what I grew up around. Um, I remember when I first started recording some of these songs last summer with my friend, uh, producer friend out of Chicago. He's like, oh cool, Asian, like American folk music. Why don't we put some like Asian instruments? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) I don't play any Asian instruments, you know? And it's like, I get it. And I've actually, like, since become much more open to those (laughs) concepts and other sounds. But for me, like, it's, um, you know, this started out as just me and my guitar. And this is the kind of music I play when I play on my guitar. There was very little thought. It's just the chord progressions I know down pat. Um, It's the songs. It's the tradition, um, musical tradition that I come from. And I think aside from, you know, hip-hop and rap, uh, folk, American folk music, this style of music is probably the best way to convey storytelling um as far as like uh, the western musical genres go and so that's kind of the, the choice behind it um i think like if you wanted to be political about it you could say this is like a intervention into the whiteness of americana music <laughs> and putting and that's fine that's for that's for critics or right. whoever to say you can say that. <laughs> it's
0: that's an fine. intervention <laughs> sure
3: um but one story I like to tell is, so my dad, like I said, we grew up on in Nashville, and he worked on Music Row. He was a um, big record company guy after living a very um, interesting life. He sort of settled into uh, the record business and moved to Nashville. And he's the guy who went to Australia and found this country singer named Keith Urban who's very popular. And I remember like Keith Urban coming to the house, and I thought it was a joke. Like, an Australian guy? Like this is country music, like American country music, like this is like so not legit. Mm-hmm. And then he turned out to be like the most legit uh, <laughs> country singer and like sold millions of records and people love him everywhere. And he's great, a hell of a guitar player, amazing. Um, but I just remember thinking about that idea of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And I think if the intervention comes in anywhere, it's like when people see me, it's like a half Vietnamese kid uh, singing music, that's where people will just be triggered to think, that's illegitimate. Like same thing with like the Carolina Chocolate Drops like there's people who build, that's not, that's not folk music when in actuality if you know the history, it's a very uh, multiracial uh, beginnings of, of, of kind of American hillbilly string music and stuff like that. And it's only to when the record companies get involved that uh, the genres get divided by race and all this kind of stuff and you know so we have this interesting uh, phenomenon of, of, of me singing folk music and then Keith Urban singing country music and he's the legitimate one this fucking Australian you know who's a great guitar player (laughs) but still it's like you know in at the end of the day it's like I don't give a shit who you are um um what kind of music you want to play if you are steeped in the tradition and you have respect for the music and that kind of stuff that's great I'm very not ethnic studies person and much more musician in that way um I'm not going to decry Paul Simon's um, appropriation of African music. I'm much more Mm -hmm. on the side of, like, I bet those dudes love fucking playing on Graceland. (laughs) Um, But uh, I understand the complications. And in this case, I think that, yeah, the the choice to make Americana music is a choice to sort of reach out an arm around these folks who have been denied that idea of Americana. Mm -hmm. That's a good quote.
2: Yeah,
4: that's good. Keep that. <laughs> um, keep that, right. Uh, and the curriculum piece that you asked about um, has also like really just come up in the past couple of months. I think when I was thinking about going to grad school and especially looking for American Studies programs that had a public humanities component to it, a lot of the impetus there was trying to come to terms with the fact that growing up, in new England, I never learned about Asian Americans and I loved American history, but you know, we learned about the American revolution three times in fifth grade and eighth grade and 11th grade. Um, and barely got past, honestly, the civil war in any of these American history classes, but I loved history. Um, so it was kind of like the deepest betrayal. Um, but thinking about, okay, once I got to college and could finally choose, you know, halfway through what I wanted to be studying, I chose to study Japanese Americans. Um, And so thinking about, you know, how do we make sure that we're teaching history in a way that is more inclusive and more expansive. Um, And so I came into grad school really wanting to think about, you know, how do we shift this? How do we shift the way our curriculum is designed, the way we think about history, textbooks and history, um, whether that's through, you know, museum programs or things outside of the classroom or really in the classroom. Um, And I, during college for two summers, taught seventh graders in Cambridge, Massachusetts, about Japanese American incarceration, um, which was a hilariously challenging but very rewarding experience that I think has carried through a lot. Um, And so about a month and a half ago, two months ago at this point, we played for a conference for this organization called Facing History and Ourselves, um, which creates curriculum that's used in high school, sometimes middle school, um, social studies classes. And so they flew us out to their partner schools network conference and we were playing, you know, it was our first time we'd been thinking about, okay, how could we make these songs and these videos into, you know, little curriculum modules or something to sort of be inserted. And this was our first time of like, we're going to play for teachers. Let's see if they're on board or if we're just sort of like you know, thinking this is great, but actually it's not going to work. Um, so we played So Long Amache, the song we played a little bit for you, um, and a couple of other songs, and then kind of went through, here's how we think this fitting. this would fit into a classroom, whether it's, you know... Um, having annotated lyrics or having the students annotate the lyrics themselves. Um, here's, you know, how much intro you would need to do, maybe how much context to provide. And the response we got back was like, we'll use these in our classrooms on Monday. Do you have them? We were like, no, we need money. <laughs> we want to make these videos and like, we want to make this for you. Um, but we need to do a lot of kind of research and, and thinking about, you know, we're really thinking about this as an intervention Um a methodological intervention into how we teach history. And so, you know, this summer, one of our projects is to kind of make what we could see as a a curriculum model. Um, And we're working with Bob Lee, who's both of our advisors, who's putting together some workshops for um, students in Providence this summer, thinking about history and like, how do you express history? What is history? What is the archive? And kind of expanding those questions. So we're creating some workshops for them um, that will be very helpful, I think, in thinking about, Okay, so how do we, you know, have these little standalone um, curriculum modules that are teaching about, you know, something to do with Japanese American incarceration or the Vietnam War or like the refugee experience in the United States, not as a like open and shut? Here's, you know, this part of history. Here's how you learn history, but as a, you know, these were stories that were important to us for. Very personal, family-related reasons. Your family has has histories. Like expand what you think of as the archive. Expand how you think about expressing history, whether it's songwriting or whether it's visual art or creative writing or you know material history, whatever. Um, but letting students at an earlier age have the chance to kind of write their own histories. Mm is the dream um, with this project and I think also just, you know, providing a little bit of extra material to, to let co- students have questions and ask questions and say like, that's okay, what you're getting in your textbook is not everything. Um, there's a lot of other stories and if you're curious, like pursue that with the internet now. It's easy. <laughs> um, there's a lot of material out there. So we're still in the pretty early stages of that piece, um, but I think for me, and thinking about like professionally, you know, unless we get a huge record deal and, and world really famous anymore, musician. Okay, thank you, Julian. Um, but this is, you know, like this is where I see this project and the research really mattering um, and having a kind of lasting legacy beyond when we're touring in the fall and um, things like that.
0: I on the subject of touring, mm-hmm. I gotta ask, like, how do you manage being graduate students and touring musicians? <laughs> Everyone in the Public Humanities program is like, how? How does she do it? How yeah. do they do it?
4: This semester has been an adventure, let me tell you. Um, but I think I've learned a lot about myself and like how quickly I can read a book. Um, so in that case, it's been good. And honestly, I have to say that Brown and American Studies and Public Humanities have been so supportive of this project in a way that made it really possible, I think. Um, Because I'm still in coursework. Julian's teaching a class this semester. So I'm just neglecting my (laughs) (laughs) students. No, they've been awesome. Um, But no, it's been, you know, I remember having a conversation at the beginning of this semester of like, okay, we'll do like this one big tour that we have in February. um, And then we'll just do stuff in Providence and stuff on the weekends and make it work. And I mean, we've pretty much managed that with some exceptions. Um, But it's been, I do think that my coursework and my time in the classroom has been much more meaningful to me, I'm sure it would have been meaningful anyway, but because of having this other piece of like seeing some of what we're talking about actually in practice and being able to share, you know, the research and the questions that I'm thinking about in the classroom with folks on the road. Um, So that's definitely been a good partnership. But in the fall, we are taking time off um, to be doing tour full time. which I was just sharing with a professor, like I kind of see it as a research semester shoved in the middle of my two years of coursework, um, because it's so tied into what I think will be my dissertation, what actually is Julian's dissertation. Um, but no, it's it's really awesome to be at a place like Brown that you know is supportive of this kind of work and is allowing us to take the time we need to sort of really develop this project more fully. So we're starting at the end of September, um, really traveling across the country. So we have some dates, the Japanese American National Museum in LA, we're doing an artist residency in New Mexico. We have a concert at um, Lincoln Center in New York City in November. And then along the way, a lot of different communities and places where we we will be playing.
3: Yeah, Um, Yeah, the more fun stuff for me is like the museum stuff and the cultural center and the university stuff is awesome. And every show is um, great. Um, but I think the most interesting things for me are when we get to the Midwest and mm-hmm. the Mountain West, um, like we're going to organize a little tour around Wyoming where Heart Mountain was um, or is and uh, go to just very small towns and just play free shows at high schools try to sponsor that some way, um, you know, get money from the university to do a workshop and then mm-hmm. kind of spread that out throughout the state to um, so these really, I mean, really small towns. 500 people. yeah, Because that's a conversation that should be had. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, you can think about it politically. It's like, if someone hears a song like this, they might be a little bit more offended when Trump spouts off about immigrants and refugees. If they see, like, people who have lived through, mm-hmm. had families who lived through these legacies and stuff like that. It's like, oh, those people are very nice you know and at the end of the day that's kind of what it comes down to yeah. we're in this like bastion of liberal thought of brown but when we actually go back out to where i'm from you know just making human contact means a lot mm-hmm. you know and um that's sort of why you tour for all the other reasons we said but at the end of the day too it's like yeah i can't wait to go to the middle of wisconsin or south dakota or wyoming or idaho and talk to people who might have an uncle who's a legit nazi and white supremacists and you're not going to change the world through songs i don't believe in music as resistance um once again critics could feel free to say that <laughs> but i do think that you know you got to do something and for us mm-hmm. we're researchers and we're singers and we have legs and cars that will hopefully hold up yeah, <laughs>
4: we'll see about that um, <laughs>
3: you know just try to scrape together some funds to spread uh what we're doing yeah. and um
4: yeah. Yeah, we had a we did a show at the University of Southern Maine a couple weeks ago and it was a tough show for us. We were also playing in like the basement of their student center and so there was this place where you could get like chicken fingers and food in the back and so in order between yeah, in between songs it was like order 9, <laughs> order 10, we we're like your your food's ready. Um so challenging in that way, but also challenging because we were playing for students who were not familiar with this history. There was one um, exchange student there from Japan, but otherwise it was a mostly white audience. Um, and it was challenging for us cause we'd been playing some gigs of kind of the home team crowd. Yeah. But afterwards we had this conversation of like, but these are the gigs that we said we wanted to do. Like, these are the conversations that we said we wanted to have. Um, there was a janitor who was kind of walking through and heard us playing and ended up sitting down and, and coming to talk with us afterwards. And, you know, those are, those conversations really matter. Um, yeah. Yeah.
3: I think his name was Rick. And he just yeah. came up to me afterwards, and he was just, like, kind of, like, I don't know, just, like, sort of processing. Mm-hmm. And he was, like, yeah, so her grandma was at a concentration camp in America? Huh. Yeah, so I just looked this up on my phone, and there was 10,000 people there that were sent to this, like, Americans who were sent to this camp? And I was, like, yeah, it's pretty fucked up, huh? Yeah. And, uh, and just you kind of saw the process of, like, to make a dude at the University of Southern Maine on the custodial staff Pull out his phone and Google or Wikipedia Japanese internment. That's like a win.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, yeah. I don't know what more yeah. we want. Like, right. it'd be nice to like think of myself as like, uh, you know, a um, cultural front leftist in the '30s and '40s, riding the rails like Woody Guthrie and singing folk songs that will change American history. But at the end of the day, it's like you do what you can, mm-hmm. and this is what we can do. Yeah. And I I would echo that what Aaron said that yeah. Brown is a place. Um, that's given us a, a long leash. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not, a, not an, there is still a leash there. Um, <laughs> we have to come back. <laughs> we have to come back. I do have to turn in we some will. sort of dissertation. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been good and, and we'll see how the tour goes. It'll mm-hmm. be, uh, it'll be fun. it will be some rough in it, but, um, yeah. 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 Maybe we'll ride some boxcars.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, folks, be on the lookout for No-No Boy, the summer and fall. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to play one more song before I let you go?
3: Yeah. Sure. yeah. Let's do uh, Little Saigon. Okay. Um, it'd be good to record the story I always tell beforehand. So there was this, um, <laughs> when I was a kid, I was a, a, a music writer, like an entertainment writer for the paper in Nashville called The Tennessean. uh Sort of like that movie, Almost Famous. Um, where I just go interview people at clubs, and was way too young to do that. <laughs> and there's this really great songwriter that I um, was reviewing, named Ron Sexsmith from Toronto. Beautiful songwriter, one of the best in North America. And uh, he had this song called Lebanon, Tennessee. And it's a song that makes you think Lebanon, Tennessee, is the most beautiful place that's ever existed in the history of the world. Uh, when, in fact, living very close to Lebanon, Tennessee, I could tell you that it was one of maybe the worst places <laughs> um, at the time. Maybe it's kind of come up in a middle Tennessee run. No? Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I was talking to Ron, and I was like, Ron, how did you write this beautiful, like, pastoral, dreamy song about Lebanon, Tennessee? And he told me this, you know, expectedly beautiful story about how he was a bike messenger in Toronto, and he got a package that he had delivered, had to deliver from Lebanon, Tennessee. And he said, wow, that just seems like a beautiful place to live. <laughs> so he got a song out of it. And I was talking earlier about you know, being part of this weird South Vietnamese uh, refugee community and how my, I took my mom back to Vietnam in 2013. That's the first time she had been back since 68. It's a long time to not be able to go back to the place you were born. But that's the severity of this war and this trauma and the actual politics behind it, right? To, to imagine having to escape and be glad about escaping your home is a paradoxical, really messed up thing. And uh, so I kind of wrote this song. It's called Little Saigon. It was one of those songs around that kitchen table, uh, dining room table that I was talking about earlier that just kind of flowed out, just kind of smelling my mom's food. And it's sort of bittersweet, and it's just thinking about, you know, as like me and my brother is the only Vietnamese kids we knew in Nashville and you know having not even a home within a community of refugees but being kind of on an island uh, within that in Tennessee it's kind of uh, kind of about that I heard about a place called
2: Little Saigon Where everybody's got my face So mine won't have to grow so long Palm trees, a terrace seed cafe where I belong Oh, I think I'd like to go to this place Little Saigon Go to a place Called Little Saigon Buy shoes in a Little shop and silk From Vietnam Take lessons On the Dan Bao And play an old folk song Oh I think I'd like To go to this place Little second. Un jour, je vais aller à Little Saigon. J'enverrai une lettre en français à ma maman. C'est pas Saigon, maman. Et je serai content longtemps Oh je je voudrais aller à Little Saigon
1: One day I'm gonna go to a place
2: called Little Saigon Listen to the CBC band loud with my headphones on walk around the indoor mall where the language sounds like song Oh, I think I'd like to go to this place Little Saigon Yes, I think I'd like to go to this place Little Saigon